Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia. Wow, this is surprising, isn't it, that this issue has come up again? I think a lot of people thought this one was done and dusted. You go back to 2017, the B.C. government brought in that ban on grizzly bear hunting. It sounded like that fight was over. But now a new movement to restore the grizzly bear hunt. Take a look at this here now. There is a discussion paper within government, proposed framework on this that's being discussed in government. It says, I'm looking at it right now, it says there are indigenous communities that have an economic interest in guide outfitting and grizzly bear hunting. For some of these communities, the closure of the hunt resulted in negative economic impacts some have expressed an interest in re- reinstating a licensed hunt to provide a local source of income for First Nations. Got Robin Unruh standing by to discuss. First, let, let's go back in time here. Let's go back to 2017 Global News Report on the Grizzly Hunt Ban. Have a listen. Grizzlies are now off limits to hunters in this province. Protecting this iconic species is simply the right thing to do. The provincial government announcing an immediate and total ban for everyone except First Nations who can continue to hunt grizzlies for food, social, ceremonial or treaty rights. This announcement on grizzly bears is fantastic. It's fantastic news. Okay, the debate on again on this one. Could the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia be reinstated? Let's discuss now with my guest, Robin Unruh, president of Hunters for BC. Robin, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, thanks a lot for doing it. Robin, where do you stand in the grizzly bear hunt? What do you think of the ban? Well, uh, the ban uh, was based on emotions and political agendas um which led to led to um voting in their favor uh scientists were ignored the auditor general was ignored um hunters were ignored first nations were ignored um in this decision so hunters for bc stands for reinstating the grizzly bear hunt um obviously uh there's conditions attached to this um not asking for a free-for-all. It needs to be closely monitored um, with data collected um, to help with science, uh, not only for the grizzly bears, um, also for ungulate recoveries uh, throughout the province as well. So um, I think largely um, since the ban in 2017, um, it was noted uh, that the greatest threat to grizzly bears in the province is human encroachment, uh, heavy industry, and specifically habitat loss. Uh, that was ignored, um, which leads into an emotion-based decision. 
Um, the the fact that these conversations are happening again is good news. Let's have these discussions with our mm. First Nations. Let's have these discussions with Together for Wildlife. Let's have these discussions with our biologists and our professionals um, that are trained, educated, and and know the field of wildlife management. And, okay, speak, and speaking works. speaking of biologists, Robin, I'll, I'll be speaking to a researcher, a wildlife scientist here shortly on, on that precise issue. So, like, when you say that you think the ban was based on emotion and not science, what do you mean by that? You're saying that the grizzly bear population in, in British Columbia is not is not threatened by hunting? Absolutely not. Um, yeah. Before 2017, uh, hunting took harvested two uh, percent of the estimated population of grizzlies in the right. province. In the Auditor General report, um, it was noted that it was completely sustainable. It was also labeled as a trophy hunt and pre-2017 um, meat retention of a grizzly bear was optional. Um, I'm hoping that if we see a reinstatement, when we see a reinstatement, um, that will no longer be an option. It will be mandatory. Okay, I know that I know guys who are bear, uh, black bear hunters, and and they say that the meat from eating a black bear is delicious and great, and and they eat the meat. What I, I I've heard though, the grizzly bears are not as good table fare, not as good eaten. Is that true? In my in my opinion, that is that is very false. I have eaten grizzly bear; it is very good. Um, obviously, uh, care of the meat, preparation of the meat is very important, as with all animals so um it's up to the individual to make sure that they've um that they've done their part their due diligence in in ensuring that what they're bringing home is is well cared for and prepared yeah what do you say to the argument that like i've looked at some opinion polling on this and i remember covering this story at the time when the ban came in and there was there were a lot of opinion polls done on this in british columbia and they consistently showed that a a large majority of British Columbians supported the the ban, and I think you can understand why. Like you got this beautiful, iconic animal that that people love love these animals. I wouldn't want to meet one, you know, walking down a, a trail through the forest. But for people who see them on television or whatever, they they love the grizzly bear, and you can understand why. They're beautiful, right? What do you, Robin? What do you say to them to people who say oh, this is terrible to shoot these bears? Uh, first of all, I would have to have to comment the fact that I love grizzly bears as well. Um, regardless of where I'm at, what I'm doing in the field, um, the the sight and the viewing of a grizzly bear is is second to none. It's something that you remember. It's something you talk about when you get home. And it's something if you're lucky enough to get some photos, it's something that you have forever. Uh, so let's be perfectly clear on having an estimated population of 15,000 grizzly bears in the province, um, removing 2% does not um, have any effect at all on their population. Now, if you're looking towards the Taltan area, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they want grizzly bear management um, to help the recovery of caribou and moose. And I can fully understand that. Now, if you're looking at some of the statistics in the province, um, you know, moose have declined up to 50% in many areas, and, and it is a grave concern. 
why has this not become a concern to the public? It does not seem to stir the emotion. So, so you're so you're saying if you take out a, a a carefully managed number of grizzly bears through a through a like a limited entry hunt, that would help the moose. That would help more more moose survive. It will help the moose. Okay. And it's all it's part of a of a complete and total package of wildlife management. So let's not only say by taking out a few grizzlies, it's going to save the moose, save the caribou. It's not. Yeah. Um, we need to we need to understand um, what's happened in our province. We need to understand that the number one factor affecting grizzly bears and the rest of our wildlife in the province is habitat loss. Right. Um, do you think why is this you're, not making headlines? Your group stands up for hunters' rights in BC. What about like I've heard this from from hunting friends of mine who say that you know even though they might not be interested in going out in and shooting a, a grizzly bear, maybe they're deer hunters or something else, they do think that maybe banning the grizzly bear hunt is sort of thin edge of the wedge or a bit of a slippery slope, and maybe, you know, they start looking at banning other species, big game species in British Columbia from hunting. Is that a concern for you? Uh, okay. I think... Um, <clears throat> When you when you put things in that perspective, um, the management of predators, uh, keeping predator prey ratios in check, and having a healthy ecosystem, um, you do need to manage all the wildlife in the province. So, that being said, it has to be carefully managed, uh, where you don't have a balance uh, shifting or the pendulum swing the opposite direction. Right. So. Having wolves, mountain lions, coyotes, grizzly bears, wolverines on the landscape, 100% necessary. I wouldn't want to live in a province that had it any other way. Okay. Um, that being said, let's let's manage all our wildlife um, without emotion, without politics. Um, you know, and and that's the biggest thing is let's listen to our First Nations, our traditional knowledge, our citizen yeah. science, and and also our scientists. Let's okay. use the best available science. All right. Robin, thank you for your time and thoughts today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. All right, let's continue talking about the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia. has been banned for years, but a movement now to start it up again. Let's check in with Clayton Lamb. Clayton is a wildlife scientist and researcher. Very pleased to welcome him back. Clayton, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Clayton, my previous guest said there are 15,000 grizzly bears in B.C. Is that, a, is that number in the ballpark? Is that correct? Yep, yep, that's right. That's in the, in the ballpark for sure. Yeah, okay. And would you say that's a, a healthy, sustainable number here that could, could man, they could manage with a limited entry hunt, or do you think hunting is a threat to, threat to grizzlies? Yeah, that's a lot of bears. I mean, that's, that's close to half of the grizzly bears that occur in all of Canada, and, you know, we have quite dense populations of grizzly bears across British Columbia. Um, you know, there was somewhere on the order of 300 grizzly bears hunted when the hunt was open. It was about 2% of the population. And yeah. uh, the science kind of says that we can uh, sustainably hunt up to about 5%. So, yeah, I mean, I think a small uh, limited hunt is sustainable uh, from a population perspective. Yeah, I remember at the time of this ban, there there was a lot of science saying that the numbers were sustainable and a hunt would be okay, although in some parts of the province, 
in some sort of specific regions, maybe the numbers were a little lower than they'd like. I mean, can you ma- could they manage a hunt where, you know, hunting's allowed in areas of the province where the bears are abundant and, and not in other areas? Yeah, yeah, that's just it. I mean, so bears aren't doing uh, great in every single region of British Columbia. Some spots have some real threats, and those places were historically not hunted because of those threats. And there's places where there are a lot of bears, and I mean, even so many bears, I'm, I'm here in the Kootenays right now, and there's a lot of grizzly bears in the Kootenays, a lot of conflict, and, you know, there are places where we could sustainably hunt bears for sure. And the way that the hunt works is it's kind of... Um, the, the province is split up, split up into hundreds of little um, chunks. And so you can kind of turn the hunt on and off depending on what the population is and what the other threats are in that area. Right, right. Where do First Nations fit in this? Because I, I think there's some division in, among First Nations because I know there are some First Nations that support the ban, right? And then there are others, and very prominently this week, uh, at least one First Nation speaking out saying, hey, this, this ban cost us a lot of money because our our first nation was involved in guide outfitting and and you know rich american hunters would come up here to bag a grizzly and spend tens of thousands of dollars you know this is big bucks here and they would like to restore some of that some of that income so there are some divisions it appears among first nations around a grizzly bear hunt is that your is that your perspective on it too or what do you think yeah yeah that's that's what i'm saying I and mean, i obviously can't speak for those nations but i mean what i yeah. see around the provinces, you know, there's no one relationship with the animals and with the the environment, you know, across First Nations. They have distinct histories and cultures, and, you know, there are uh, communities on the coast that have very strong um, uh, aversion to the hunt. It's not consistent with their way of relating to grizzly bears, and, you know, they were nations that led a lot of the um, the ban, and I think that the the ban in those areas is probably um, appropriate. You know, it's not consistent with how those nations want to see those bears treated, and they don't want hunters in that area. I think that's completely appropriate. Um, There are, you know, that sort of sentiment, though, was spread by uh, the province across uh, the entire province and applied to areas where First Nations may not feel the same way. There, As you say, there's nations that led guided hunts. There's nations that hunt grizzly bears, and they are doing that today still. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different relationships with bears, and I don't think that the, the full ban necessarily uh, acknowledges those sort of differences across the province in a, in a nimble way. Do you think, okay, we just have one minute left, Clayton, do you think science, the science and the biology of this should be the deciding factor? Because if you take a look at the opinion polls, a lot of people love grizzly bears. They don't want to see them killed and hunted. Should that be the deciding factor, opinion polls, or, or, or should it be the science? We've got 30 seconds here. I think, I think it should be both. I mean, the science tells us we can do it appropriately. And I think we do have to listen to the people of British Columbia and especially the people that live with grizzly bears, though. You know, it is different coming from somewhere without bears versus the people that have to coexist with them. So that's kind of where we want to focus is how do we keep bears and, on the landscape and people happy. Okay, it's very interesting to see this topic come up this week and we're going to follow it going forward. Clayton, thank you for your time today. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
Okay, let's talk about the uh, alleged drunk driver video here that has gone viral here in the last few days. Now, this happened last week, and it's gone crazy on TikTok and other social media platforms. Uh, near, It was Highway 99 near Lillooet, and the video shows a driver. It is unbelievable video. The driver of this vehicle is just swerving all over the road into the lane of oncoming traffic, eventually goes off the road and into a ditch. Police recommending charges in the case. Got Paul Doroshenko standing by to discuss. First, let's have a little listen here to some of the viral video of it. They frequently drove into oncoming traffic lanes, and I thought they were either going to get in a head-on collision or drive off the road. They almost did the latter quite a few times. The car almost hits other vehicles head-on. Thankfully, it was a safe ending for all. The driver was completely unharmed after driving off the road and into the ditch. Yeah, and the, the person who shot the video noted there was no cell service in the area, so they could not phone police to notify what they were watching on the highway with uh, quite a lot of alarm. Let's check in with Paul Doroshenko now, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul. Nice to speak with you, Mike. Yeah, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for doing it. So I take a look at this video. This is wild. I don't think I've ever seen a, a car like that swerving all over the highway like that. Very frightening. And the person who shot the video said that they could not call police because there was no there was no cell service in that area. That's what you should do, though, if you if you witness something like that, right? You should call call nine one one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't have to be that bad. I, I've been doing this for 23 years, defending these cases. I've never seen anything that was quite that, uh, quite that uh, uh, disturbing to watch. I mean, that person was all over the road. But I mean, if you see somebody and, and you are of the view that, you know, their capacity or their condition is compromised and uh, on the basis of driving behavior that you've observed, you know, you don't, you don't try and call the normal complaint line. You phone 911 if you can. Yeah, and this is, okay, now here's something else. That's good advice, I think. If you ever see something like that, don't hesitate to, to call in because very, very fortunate in this particular case that nobody was badly injured or worse here in that one. So we'll follow that case for you. Okay, uh, we know that drunk driving is against the law. Drunk boating is also against the law. Taking a look at some of these headlines in the news recently, Paul, police arrest grossly intoxicated kayakers on a bc lake there's a near, near no, uh, oyama bc <laughs> drunk kayaking another one here bc man facing a court date for allegedly operating a canoe while impaired drunk canoeing is how often do you see that like Whenever I th when I think of drunk boating, I think of maybe some guy in a power boat, but like drunk kayaking, drunk canoeing, that's against the law too, right? Well, is, I mean, if you're over 80 milligrams uh, within two hours after operating the boat, I mean, of course, you're going to be dragged out of the boat or, you're, or, uh, or you get on shore, uh, then it's a criminal offense. And, and it wasn't always so, right? But they've written it into the criminal code. Uh, including a vessel, and a vessel is widely defined, and we always joke that a pool noodle could theoretically be a vessel. But people get in a canoe, you know, they they bring a beer, they get into a boat, they crack a beer, and they think that they're going to be just fine. And, and there's an offense of, for having open liquor uh, in a canoe or in a kayak. I mean, you're not allowed to even transport it, um, you know, take it out and, and, and boat around with, with uh, alcohol in your 
in your uh, kayak or your canoe. Interestingly, however, what you just mentioned, the big power boat, uh, there may be an exemption there because you can have open liquor in a boat provided that it's got a, a kitchen, a bed, and a toilet. And there's nothing that really seems to stop you, aside from your conscience, I hope, from cracking a beer uh, in your powerboat so long as you're, uh, you're under 80 milligrams, even while operating the boat. Okay, presumably, though, if you're over 80 milligrams, you, you, it's illegal to drive that boat, though. It's, oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. It's illegal yeah. to, have, uh, to care and control to operate the boat. I mean, if you're, if you're at 20 milligrams, you're fine. Uh, if you're at uh, 80 milligrams within the two hours after operating it, and again, this is a situation where you're back at a police station being tested, uh, then, yeah, that's a criminal offense, and, uh, and the conviction would lead, to, uh, uh, it would lead to a criminal conviction. Okay, good to know. Speaking to Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer in British Columbia, let's talk about another story in the news, Paul, and that is what authority and rights do the police have when it comes to examining the computer in your vehicle. Now, some of these new vehicles have very powerful, sophisticated computer software in the vehicle, and they can record, they can record a lot of, and store a lot of information, right? Like, can some of, can a car computer keep a record of your, your route, you know, on the GPS in your car, and is that stored in the car? What about how fast you were growing, you were going during your driving? Is that stored in a computer? It's a fascinating, expanding thing, because even if you've got a car that's, you know, 15 years old, chances are it's got a Bosch crash data retrieval system in there. And it will, if the airbags have been deployed, maintain a bunch of information about your driving in the moments before. But, of course, now we've got Teslas and all of these new cars that maintain a lot more information, uh, you know, your pedal position, your for a long period of time, right, your route, uh, your driving behavior, um, and and what vehicles were around, and it's recording all of that. And Tesla, for a long time, basically has tried to keep that information from being provided to authorities. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and in fact, they've moved their data to China to try and make it more difficult. But of course, they are you know can be compelled by a uh, warrant or a production order to produce that information. And, uh, and authorities in the Netherlands have actually figured out how to extract it from the vehicle. And they're doing that now in, in more serious crashes. So your Tesla yeah. is basically the witness against you if you're driving like a jerk and you cause an accident. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. The, the Netherlands Forensic Institute, this is a, a forensic lab part of the Dutch government said that they actually were able to successfully decrypt the Tesla computer, the data storage system. So they were able to crack the code here of a Tesla and download a whole bunch of information out of that vehicle. So what kind of information could that include? Could it include the stuff we just discussed, like where you drove and how fast you were going? Absolutely, and maybe yeah. in the video. Uh, oh. You know, <laughs> certainly it's going to have uh, it's going to have you know position of the steering wheel and where you were maintaining the position, whether or not it was in in uh, self driving mode uh, when you reacted to it, uh, reaction on the brake, the gas, your position of your gas pedal, your position of the of the wheel. As I said, I mean this is uh, this is really um, something that many people probably are not really cognizant of that you buy a Tesla and probably some of the other uh, more sophisticated vehicles out there these days. And yeah. it is 
you know, it can be used. And the question is, you know, when are we going to see sort of the the next step of that? Like we already see legislation now, uh, the Motor Vehicle Act now includes uh, future requirements for big rigs to have cameras in them uh, and the police can just seize it. Just, you know, basically gather that information. And how long until we see, you know, (laughs) uh, I guess an expectation that uh, when you show up in court, if you want to defend yourself in a in a a Tesla uh, speeding ticket case, that you don't have your video there to defend yourself. I mean, it's kind of like a almost a presumption of guilt if you have not provided the evidence that you know exists that would exonerate you in those cases. And then the next question is, how long until the police can just download it from your car? Yeah. Oh, well, this is what I'm wondering, because obviously this could be potentially crucial evidence in a case. Like, let's say police are investigating a, a collision and under the Motor Vehicle Act, police can police can seize the vehicle. Right. So if they seize your vehicle, can they get in there now and start hacking your computer and download all your data after they seize it? If you have an accident and somebody's badly injured or killed, um, you know, they'll be contemplating criminal charges. They seize the vehicle. They can seize the vehicle for 90 days just right there without even laying a charge. After that, they have to ask for an extension of time to hang on to it. But during that 90-day period, of course, they go get judicial authorization to search the vehicle and download the data. And this is very common with the Bosch data. This has happened for a long time now. Uh, but, of course, with Teslas, of course, you know, there's a lot more data that you can get. So once they lay a charge, they can hang on to that data until such time as the matter has been resolved in court. So either they, you know, go 90 days and then they get an extension from the court to be able to continue to hang on to it. It often takes a year to approve a charge in these cases because the police want to investigate everything and have everything together when they actually submit it to the prosecutor's office for charge approval. Uh, But yeah, they can hang on to that vehicle for sure. I can understand why the police would want to get their hands on that data in your vehicle computer in the investigation of a collision, but should they be able to download that data? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Paul Doroshenko is my guest. Hardy on the line in Langley. Hi, Hardy. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just got on the freeway, and I'm driving in a Tesla, and I'm watching my speed a little more than I normally do. (laughs) I guess my concern is is there's always this push and pull where the police, uh, when they're doing an investigation, the end can always justify the means, i.e., if someone was killed, they would like to do everything possible to get evidence. I just wonder how much of a break the courts might put on on an invasion of privacy regarding a, a computer like in a Tesla. Like, say, for instance, uh, there's no death, there's not even any observation, but, you know, somebody doesn't like Tesla's phones in gives a license plate, says so-and-so is speeding. Can we just, will the courts allow the police to go in and check the data like that eventually? Okay, or? okay that's a good question. Paul, your thoughts? Well, I mean, that's uh, that's the big question, you know, I want to know, too. It is good that you're taking the uh, the important message here that it, your car is spying on you. and huh. You should be driving very carefully, of course. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, to what extent, when will it be permitted? I mean, when there's a serious offense, it's usually pretty easy for the police to make it out 
you know, a, a, a warrant to be able to to gather this information. Uh, I suppose it's not, you know, likely to be uh, in front of the court because those steps that the police have to take are, you know, onerous, and it's not likely that the court would say that the uh, invasion of privacy is is something that is uh, appropriate on balance. But you know, yeah. <laughs> at what point? Where you know, is it going to end up being legislation for this to deal with this eventually, I suppose? You know, right now, um, even if they get that information, there's a question about who's going to interpret it, uh, who's going to, you know, back it up and say it's reliable because it's still hearsay. So <laughs> there, there's, wow. there's a lot of questions about it yet. Uh, but you can see, you know, the information's there. It's readily available. It's reasonably reliable. Uh, and so why shouldn't it be available in those circumstances to be used Good. against somebody? That's the argument the Crown's going to make. Okay. Thanks for the call, Hardy. Ward Stamer calling in, the mayor of Barrier, B.C. Hi, Ward. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. Hey, I just just... Oh, boy. I think... Did we lose him? We lost... We lost Ward. Too bad. Ward, try to call barrier, back. I had all sorts of comments about Barrier to make. Okay. Call back, Ward, if you can. Rick in Port Moody. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Wow. Ward's loss is my gain. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Mike, Paul, how are you? You know what? I really look at this as very cut and dry. If you're in an accident and uh, ICBC is involved and police are there, you're on a public road, uh, any data there is public. I think the police should have full access to it at all times. I mean, certainly in a private vehicle, you know, or when you're driving, you're not in an accident for them to pull it you over and say, I want to look at your stuff. Uh, no, of course not. But if you're involved in an accident, ICBC is involved, they should have full access to be able to look at that. But will they? I mean, it's a great question. Okay, th- thank you for that. Well, Paul, what is what is the status of this in BC right now? Has this been tested in court? Do police, do they have access to this data now? Well, I mean, it's not uncommon for them to have the access for the Bosch data. So basically, everybody's using the same Bosch computer system for for crash data, uh, and they're getting that regularly. So it seems to me that there's a it's a very easy stretch, and I know that there's cases that are are being investigated now involving Teslas. Uh, it's a very easy stretch to the uh, to you know to, to to get this next data, and again, if it's reliable and accurately reflects what was in there, it's likely to be admissible. Uh, The question is, you know, what does it mean? Rob and Burnaby. Rob, you got 30 seconds here. Uh, Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, Listen, I'm just questioning a little bit Mr. Doroshenko's position on, it seems that he automatically presumes that there should be access. But that's a question that the court should hear hear arguments on, but from both sides. We are entitled to to our privacy, the presumption of privacy, and if, uh, if a person can argue that they have uh, merit to the idea that the court should not get access to this privacy, then that's something that the, that the court should rule on individually, okay. case by case. And not Paul, thir- Paul, 30, you have 30 seconds, Paul, to respond. Go ahead. Well, you, you apply for a warrant, you can always challenge the warrant, okay? And the court will rule on it at that point if you, you know, have the standing to challenge the warrant. All right, let's talk inflation now. Brand new numbers out from StatsCan yesterday. Inflation rate uh, last month was 3.3%. So inflation going back up again. This is not good. We had been seeing inflation cooling off here in recent months. Now we see inflation going in the wrong direction. Once again, so 3.3%, the inflation rate. It has sparked fears of another potential interest rate hike to control inflation. Have a listen to this report here now on gas and grocery prices going up, especially. Have a listen. 
Holy cow, yeah, gas prices went up. Wow. It's just frustrating not being able to have any way to save money in this economy right now. Grocery prices were up 8.5% compared to last year, with pasta increasing 17.1%, frozen vegetables up 18.1%, and cooking oils are up more than 15% year over year. Okay, mortgage interest rates up as well. That is also driving inflation too. Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative party leader, leading in the opinion polls right now. Uh, could he be the next prime minister here? He was asked this week about inflation. Here's what he had to say. Just inflation has struck again. Trudeau's inflationary taxes and deficits have sent prices rising again with inflation on the march. Trudeau told us that he had the problem fixed last month. Well, it turned out that was not true. His carbon tax is driving up gas, heat and groceries. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jazraj Singh Halan, conservative finance critic in the House of Commons in Ottawa, a a federal MP for Calgary Forest Lawn. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jazraj, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing it. Okay, let's talk inflation here. 3.3% here is the new inflation number. It's going in the wrong direction again. What are you hearing from your constituents? Uh, look, this is another uppercut to hardworking, struggling Canadians who have already been hit with just inflation for many years now. We see food bank usage up. We see millions of people in a single month in Canada. Using a food bank, we see the cost of everything going up because of Trudeau's taxes, deficits, and his carbon tax. And so people are suffering, and this is going to put them even further over the edge. We see that uh, the housing costs have doubled under Justin Trudeau in the last eight years. And why is, so, why is that so? It's because his deficits, which he's accumulated more debt than every single prime minister before him combined. Yeah. And that inflationary deficit spending led to higher inflation, which led to Uh, Bank of Canada um, raising its interest rate. And now Canada is at most at risk in the G7 of a mortgage default crisis. We need to eliminate this inflationary, the inflationary deficit so we can bring down inflation, bring down the Bank of Canada's interest rate and so that people can actually keep their homes. Under Trudeau, we've seen all sorts of, of pain in Canadians. Okay, well, let's talk about how your Conservative Party would, would potentially do it differently. And I want to play another clip here from your party leader, Pierre Polyev, asked this week once again about the carbon tax, which you touched briefly on there, the Canadian carbon tax, and uh, always a target for your, your leader, Pierre Polyev. Here's what he had to say about the carbon tax this week, and then I'll get your thoughts. There are all kinds of socialist interest groups that want to justify higher taxes with phony studies. But we know very simply when you raise the cost of the gas and diesel that our farmers use to produce the food and that our truckers use to ship the food, you raise the price of the food itself. Okay, so he's arguing that the carbon tax is driving some of the inflation we're seeing at the grocery store. What would a, Jazraj, what would a conservative government do here on the carbon tax? You scrap it completely? We're going to ax the failed carbon tax. This is the same carbon tax that is a scam. The reason why we say that, the Liberals sold it as something that would fix the environment. It obviously hasn't because emissions go up, and it hasn't helped them hit a single emission reduction target that they set for themselves. Second, yeah. it, 
it's raised the cost of gas, groceries, and home heating. Alone, just alone in BC, the carbon tax as of July the 1st is making food, just the, the food inflation that it's causing is 4.8%. So to me, the cost of everything else go up. And now we're seeing people are choosing between eating and heating and housing themselves. This is the point that, it's, that we're making, that the carbon tax is a scam. And the public budgeting officer proved the, the liberals wrong who sold this as something as you would get more back in your pocket than what mm. you would pay into it. And the public budgeting officer, their own appointed PBO, proved in March that that was false because when, when they triple the tax, every Canadian household on average will be paying about $2,000 with their combined ca- carbon taxes. Oh. What would a conservative government do? We need to, if we want to be serious about the environment and be serious about our economy, those yeah. things can go hand in hand. We, we would be focused more on technology, not taxes. Technology, not taxes. We would work with industry. We need to get more of our product out. One way to help global emissions come down is replacing other forms of high-carbon-intense high energy with our low-intense carbon energy. Then we can bring yeah. home stronger paychecks for Canadians and bring a better economy and help the environment at the same time. Okay, I think carbon tax will clearly be a key issue in the next election. Here in British Columbia, we have a provincial carbon tax, and I do not see the NDP government here in B.C. showing any appetite to reduce that provincial carbon tax or get rid of it. So when when Polyev promises to scrap the federal carbon tax, what about in B.C.? We'll have to keep paying the provincial carbon tax in B.C., right? There's nothing you guys can do about that. So let's let's be clear on why the provincial the province has introduced it. It's because the federal government under Justin Trudeau and with the support of the federal NDP imposed on provinces that either they could they could implement their own yeah. or then the federal government would impose on them, just like they're doing in Alberta today. Which right. again, there's no environmental gain. It's all financial pain from this carbon tax that is obviously not working. We would, as a government under Pierre Polyev, we would scrap the federal carbon tax and we would yeah. go towards, we, we need cleaner forms of energy. We all agree on that. How we get there is we need to scrap some of the really bad bills that the Liberals and the NDP brought in, such as Bill C-69, the No New Pipeline Bill, which doesn't let get yeah. much infrastructure get built in Canada, just in B.C., there is an LNG project going on that still isn't complete to date. That was, that was one among 14 to 15 other LNG, great LNG projects that were on Justin Trudeau's desk when he took over in 2015. We recently saw Germany come to Canada to ask for our liquefied natural gas, our LNG. Yeah, yeah. And Justin Trudeau said there was no business case for it. So what did they do? They turned around to Qatar, who have less stringent environmental standards. We know there's human rights violations and they got their product from them. And on top of that, they built their own terminal within 197 days, whereas Canada is lagging behind in all developed countries. We're 64th in permitting. This is absolutely unacceptable. Okay. Speaking of Jazraj Singh Halan, conservative finance critic in the House of Commons, let me ask you about the rocketing rents here in British Columbia 
and across the country, rents are going sky high, highest in the country right here in Vancouver. So you got four th- over four, uh, $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment in Canada. This is great in, uh, in Vancouver. Who can afford this $4,000 for a two-bedroom apartment? Let me play another clip here from your leader, Pierre Polyev, because I thought this was really interesting. Polyev was asked this week about sky-high rents. What would he do about it? Would he force landlords to reduce the rent on Canadians? And this was his answer. I thought it was interesting. Let's have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. Polyev here. We, don't, we actually don't have enough apartment buildings. And so there's not enough competition. If there were more apartments, you go to your landlord and say, if you jack up the rent, I'm out. I'm going to go to move, to move down the street. Our bureaucracies across this country are blocking construction so we don't have enough homes. And I want to remove that bureaucracy by saying to the cities, you either speed up and lower the cost of permits or I'll pull back some of your infrastructure money. Okay. You either speed up construction of housing and permitting for new housing, or I will, I will pull your infrastructure money, as Pierre Polyev speaking this week. Jazraj, how, how would this work here now? So, so what kind of money are we talking about here? And for, for cities that do build the housing that we need, would they, they would get some sort of incentive? How is this going to work now? Absolutely. So let's identify what our leader just pointed out. We have a supply issue of housing in Canada. We also have, because of Justin Trudeau's deficits, we see rents and mortgages, especially mortgages, have doubled under Justin Trudeau. Whereas before it used to take 25 years to pay off a mortgage, today under Trudeau, after eight years, it takes 25 years just to save up for a down payment on a house. And this is, yeah. this is unfair to, to all the hardworking people who don't see home ownership as a dream anymore. It's lost cause on them, especially our young people and our newcomers. What's happening today is there's not enough supply. There are gatekeepers on the municipal level, and I come from a home building background. Red tape and bureaucracy on municipal and other levels, we need to get that down, and we need to get rid of the barriers so that more houses can get built. It's very interesting to know that there, are, there was more homes being built when there was less Canadians in the 1970s than there are that were built last year. And with, with the growth that we're seeing, we need to have more, but it's because Justin Trudeau has, has done the gatekeeping, hasn't re- accepted his responsibility as, as having even housing as a crisis. Their government won't even accept to admit <clears throat> that there is a housing crisis in Canada. What would a peer poly of government do? Well, first of all, we, would, we have 6,000 federal buildings and acres of federal land where we would sell them and make those convert those into buildings because that would help mm. increase the supply. We are going to make sure that we tie in federal dollars with municipalities, and that is the incentivization to the municipalities to get building and build more. And okay. I'll give you an example of just in Vancouver, that yeah. every unit of housing in Vancouver, just the government taxes, the regulations, permits and tape, red tape, that costs $1.2 million on each unit. And the other thing that we would do under Pierre Polyev government is for our seniors and those that need um, affordable housing, we want to see more density built around mm. public transit. Federal public transit needs to have more density around it so that people can have more accessibility. Our seniors can have accessibility to transit. Our young okay. people or those that need it the most. That's what a Pierre Polyev government would do. 
Jazzwatch, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.